Greetings, people of Earth, coming to you live and direct from Saturn, previously recorded. It's the Sensitive Skin Podcast. I'm your host, Bernard Meisler, the editor-in-chief of Sensitive Skin Magazine, and we'll be uh, having conversations with uh, writers, musicians, and artists. Uh, I'll speak for with them for about 45 minutes, and then we'll hear some of their work. That'll be the case, at least, uh, with the authors and musicians. What we'll do with the artist, I have no idea, but we'll get to some of those eventually. Yeah, so I've wanted to do this for a while because uh, I realized that I know so many of the people who've been in Sensitive Skin magazine over the last 10 years, and maybe that's like 500 people. And some of these people I've been acquainted with for 5, 10, 20 years or more. And although I know some of them very well, I know a lot of them in a shallow sort of way. Like we are friendly acquaintances. We get together and have a coffee or a hamburger or whatever and talk about uh, movies, art, politics, current events, the stuff that people talk about when they get together. But I don't really know them in a deep way. Like, I don't really know where they grew up or, say, if they have brothers and sisters or what their parents did or what made them decide to become an artist or writer or musician. So hopefully we'll find out. And at any rate, I'm very pleased that our first guest on the Sensitive Skin podcast is the most excellent writer, Mr. Peter Blauner. He uh, got his start as a journalist in the 80s, uh, wrote some blockbuster cover stories for New York Magazine. Then he came out with his first novel, Slow Motion Riot. I think that was around 1988 or so, and it got a lot of press. And he wrote a bunch more crime novels, Casino Moon, The Intruder, Man of the Hour, The Last Good Day, Slipping into Darkness. Uh, Then he took a hiatus for about 11 years or so where he was writing for TV shows. He wrote for Law & Order, SVU, Blue Bloods. And then in 2017, he came out with Proving Ground, a terrific novel. And I followed that just recently, just a few months ago with his eighth novel, Sunrise Highway, which is a sequel to Proving Ground. And uh, after our conversation, which goes on for a little bit, Pete will read the uh, foreword to Sunrise Highway, which was originally published in Sensitive Skin about three years ago as a standalone short story called The Storm. Uh, And also Pete is one of those people who I have known for a long time, which is why I I give that little intro where I say I'm going to ask you questions like a prosecutor, even if I know the answer, because uh, uh, in this case, at least, I do know the answer to some of the questions I'm asking, but you don't. Or maybe you do. I don't know. How can I tell? So I asked them anyway. At any rate, without further ado, very proud to present the initial premiere numero uno episode of the Sensitive Skin podcast with our guest, Mr. Peter Blauner. Uh, Like a uh, prosecutor, I may know the answer to some of these questions, but our audience probably doesn't. So, All right. I'll uh, try and do it in an entertaining way to the best of my ability. All right. So uh, we'll start out with, uh, you know, where did you grow up? I uh, grew up in New York City Mm -hmm. in the 60s and the 70s and the bad old days that have been sort of fetishized and uh, turned into legend and Shows like uh, The Deuce mm-hmm. and uh, 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 some of the other things that you've seen in uh, film at the time. And um, I went to a very good school uh, called Collegiate on the Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. And uh, on one side of the street was the school itself. And I got a great classic education. I, you know, I learned my Wordsworth and Longfellow and Keats and Shelley. But right on the other side of the street was a halfway house called the Hotel Belclair. Uh-huh. And deinstitutionalization was just taking place at the time. And so the street life was very wild and flamboyant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every day when I walked to school, there'd be people like the Phantom and the Birdman literally out on the sidewalk squawking at you. Uh, or you'd see Miles Davis, who lived right across the street from me, uh-huh. walk with his dog and his cat, who looked like they were on heroin as well. Mm-hmm. So between those two worlds, if you didn't start writing, there was something wrong with you. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next. It's like, so why did you, you know, why did you start writing when, uh, I, I, I kind of feel like there's a, uh, a common thread among people who, who become writers. Well, I'd be interested what that common thread was for me. It was just, I can't believe what I just saw. Uh-huh. I okay. share this experience with somebody and try and make sense of it by writing it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember when I was uh, 15, uh, I had a job as a, an ice cream vendor. I was a good humor man uh, down near Wall Street, and I saved my money, and I was going to buy my mother a Mother's Day present. And I went to Gimbel's, which was on 86th Street back mm-hmm. then. And I was at the counter, and I was talking to uh, the, the saleswoman, and I turned around, and there was a four-year-old girl standing in the middle of the floor and she started to pull down her dress and her nanny said to her stop that you're as bad as your mother (laughs) (laughs) and that's the moment that i decided i wanted to be a writer because i was like i got to tell somebody about this number one and number two i could imagine what the whole narrative was that led up to Mm -hmm, that moment mm -hmm. so (laughs) So just uh, just uh, surrounded by good material, you felt yeah. that you had to tell some stories. Yeah, well, also it's sort of like being focused because uh, uh, nothing else was working out great. Like in my head, I was a great guitar player, but in my hands, I wasn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, in my head, I was a great baseball player. And in my hands, I wasn't. And I wasn't like one of those kids who was like, well, I'm not interested in sports. I'm more into modern dance. Stuff. No, I, I love sports. Mm-hmm. So it was shocking to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I finally but given I, up I, my dream of a couple of years ago of uh, playing center field for the Yankees. Yes. Yeah. 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 Never say die. You yeah. never know. <laughs> <laughs> don't let go of those dreams, right? I, well, the Mets are still possible. So I don't <laughs> the Yankees. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, what I was going to say, the common thread, I think, is, uh, and maybe the, not all of this applies to you, maybe none of it does, but I, I think it's this sort of combination of uh, needing to find a voice, feeling like you're not being heard, like maybe you're not like the most popular kid in high school, maybe you're shy, uh, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, the struggle for self-expression, yeah. which uh, seemed like a noble pursuit back then but now that we have the internet i'm not so sure it's so noble well yeah there's uh <laughs> democracy <laughs> at its worst yeah. to tocqueville's nightmare yeah. the uh, comment right. section yeah right you can th- you can take a good idea too far yeah <laughs> take it in the wrong direction yeah and and who were your uh big inspirations or literary heroes back when you first started or or even today well, even now who are who are you well they, people? well they yeah they change all the time right um when, when I was uh, growing up, I think the book that made me kind of go, oh, maybe I, I can do this, was um, a novella by an English writer named Alan Silito called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. I've heard right. of it, not read it, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good movie with uh, Tom Courtney. It's about a kid who's in reform school, and uh, the governors of the reform school recruit him to be a long distance runner and he basically says i'm not going to play your game and he subverts the whole system from that which is for a 13 year old that's 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 crack um and of course the raymond chandlers and dashiell hammett's which Mm -hmm. is what you expect for a crime writer but i think really the first writer who made me laugh out loud and made me think oh this is something I'd, i'd like to try doing was jimmy breslin um, who uh-huh. started as a sports writer. I, we, we were talking about sports before. He wrote a wonderful book about the 1962 Mets called Can't Anybody Here Play This Game? Oh, then, yeah. I forgot that he started as a sports writer. Yeah, and he was a great sports writer. Yeah, I think of yeah. him as uh, the gang who couldn't shoot straight. Is the, uh, well, that was the other one I was going to say. Uh, I mean, he was a great newspaper columnist, so I would mm-hmm. read him two or three times a week in the New York Post and later in the Daily News. But then he had this uh, uh, mafia book, The Gang Who Couldn't Shoot Straight. I think it came out right around the same time as The Godfather. And he had a wonderful scene where um, this gangster decides to kill another gangster. 
and he's going to do it in a bar, and he's going to garret him and stab him. And he realizes that this could be very, very noisy. So he, he, he uh, says, I have to uh, do something to camouflage the noise. So he goes over to the jukebox, puts six quarters in for the same song to be played over and over and over again, and he sees the Beatles. And so he, he uh, stabs in the numbers. So the same Beatles song will play six times in a row. So he figures the Beatles, loud, energetic youth music, rock and roll. But the song he chooses is Penny Lane. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a great image. <laughs> I thought, I, I, I got to do something like that. Just that juxtaposition of ex- extreme violence, uh, realism, and absurdity is a formula uh, that's hard to resist for uh, a, a reader of a certain kind. Absolutely. I mean, and those are, you know, my favorite kind of uh, crime novels that are yeah. really dark, but like have a moment in there where, that are just hilarious. Like, you know, it's, I'm a big uh, Elmore Leonard fan. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, well, so so I, I, I grew up really uh, admiring Breslin. And then also um, the other guy who was very much like him was Pete Hamill, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote for uh, The Post and the News as well. And then I ended up working for Pete. Mm-hmm. as his assistant uh, uh, for one summer. And that was really uh, a formative experience for me. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you started out uh, as a journalist, though. Uh, yeah. 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 And was the it, plan always to, like, I'm going to get my chops together, I can have a job making money, writing, and work on my novels? Was that always your plan? or That, that was definitely the uh, – three-year plan that turned into a 13-year plan okay. like that. Um, that I, I realized I didn't want to write uh, an autobiographical novel. I didn't want to write what I thought of as a snow on the tennis court novel that of course now I really like snow on the tennis court novels, but that that's not what I wanted to do. And also from growing up in New York city, I felt a lot of my upbringing was um, not of much use uh, as material for uh, a novel mm-hmm. because J.D. Salinger had used up a lot of it mm-hmm. uh, uh, in Capture and the Rye. So it was just, okay, thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go look for something else. I had to look for other people's stories as a way to dramatize the emotions and thoughts and you know, uh, attitudes that I had. And, and being a journalist gave me a reason to go in other people's front doors and uh, to sit there and talk to them for mm-hmm. six or seven hours and hopefully understand the way they lived and why they did the things they did and why they arrived at the life decisions they arrived at. And um, the, the idea there was that I would do that for a few years and then maybe I'd have enough to say to become a novelist. Mm-hmm. And who were you working for at that time? You were, I was, uh, I was working, I started off as a, newspaper reporter I wrote for the Norwich Bulletin, Norwich, Connecticut, and then I had a brief stint at the Star-Ledger in Newark, New Jersey, and then I was at New York Magazine. I, I had been a fact checker mm-hmm. uh, for a few years, and then uh, eventually uh, they uh, let me start writing for the magazine, and uh, started writing about um, sort of met- metropolitan life, city-side stories, um, some crime um, some politics, a lot of just sort of street level stuff, uh, uh, to sort of recapture that feeling that, that I was talking about before from my childhood. Mm-hmm. And did you have a big breakthrough, uh, article cover story at some point for New York? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, there, there was, um, an editor named Peter Herbst and he was, uh, having dinner one night at a restaurant and he saw a kid come in with a mohawk and a leather jacket. And it was a fancy restaurant. And he was there with his two very respectable-looking parents. And Peter said, well, there's got to be a story in that. Um, and uh, somehow there was an awareness at the magazine that uh, there was a, a scene happening in the 80s at CBGB's, sort of a, a hardcore punk scene. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Ten years before, the magazine had had um, a big cover story called 
I think it was called The Tribal Rituals of the New Saturday Night by Nick Cohn. And that story was ultimately optioned by Robert Stigwood and turned into the movie Saturday Night Fever. It's a, it's a very entertaining story, and, it, and it's almost completely a fiction. Nick Cohn made up the whole thing. And oh, really? Read, oh, yeah, yeah. If you read the story now, he admits it. I'm not, a, I'm not pointing the finger. Nick Cohn's a very good writer. Um, but if you read the story now, all the terminology and all the attitudes expressed by the people in the story are appropriate to 1965 London, not <laughs> 1977 Britain. I mean, he, in the story, if you read it, he keeps going, I am the face. He thinks to himself, I'm the face. Well, it's like all quadrophenia. Yeah. By the hoop. I mean, that's not, that's not the way people talk in Bay Ridge <laughs> at all. Even so, to this day, they still probably don't day. use that expression. No, 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 not, not at all. Um, so the idea here was that I had to do a story, but it had to be based in uh, uh, what they called them the reality-based community. It had, it had to be true. Uh, so I, I went down there and I spent uh, uh, quite a few months uh, and got to know uh, some of the young people hanging around the scene, got to know some of the bands, and and uh, uh, wove together a narrative, and, and that became the first big cover story that I did for New York Magazine. I'd, I'd written about boxing and some other stuff up until then, but that was the one that I ended up being on Donahue about. Uh-huh. In Yiddish terms, it was a big geschrei. Um, and people were upset and pissed off at the time. I, I, I hope I buried, buried the hatchet some 32 years later with uh, most of the kids that were then kids and seem no longer kids now. And then, you know, I have nothing but good feelings about uh, those people since that was sort oh, of a moment I, in my career. You know? I'm remembering now, wasn't there like a big uh, kerfluffle or yes. imbroglio on the Donahue yeah, yeah. show? Oh, you and the oh, punk yeah, yeah, kids yeah. were yelling at you and stuff? And, well, I wasn't yelling at them, but they were yelling. I, I believe that I was called a dick on uh, <laughs> <laughs> afternoon television on the Donahue show. Anyway, it was, yeah, no, it was a funny experience, but it, it sort of gave me some confidence as a, a writer, and then I started writing longer pieces for the magazine. And then uh, eventually kind of moved forward with my plan, which was to um, find a job that would be the source of the plot, the character, the tone, and the texture of a first novel. And so I did a story about a probation officer while I was at New York Magazine, and I was like, that, that, that's it. It was, uh, it. it was a reflection very much of the era that I was living in at the moment, which was 1988, because there was crack and AIDS, and insider trading on Wall Street. And that was all reflected in the clientele of uh, the probation officer. And the probation officer himself was an interestingly divided character that on the one hand, you were supposed to be a social worker. And on the other hand, if the client screwed up, and committed more crime, well, then you were the hammer. You mm-hmm. sent him to prison. Um, and the actual language that they used is, I'm, I'm going to violate you. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're going to get violated I'm going to violate you so this is part of the reason why you do research like you wouldn't make up anything like that mm-hmm. and, and, and once one character says to another I'm going to violate you well you've got a scene right there like you've had, got dramatic conflict storytelling sure. is constant you know, can even work first. as the first line of a novel right I, I could have gone that way I could have yeah, gone yeah. that way <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but I, I left the magazine at that point, and I became a volunteer probation officer. So I could really have the day-to-day experience and, and write about it realistically and get more of those kinds of real-life details that would inform the style of the book more than me trying to uh, boost the style of another writer. So you actually left the magazine before you had written Slow Motion Riot or had a book deal? Yeah. Wow. No, no. I, I was 28, and I said, I'm either going to commit and try and make this work. And if it doesn't work, then I won't look back when I'm in my 50s and say, well, I could have if I'd only had the nerve. I, I wanted to actually take the chance and if it, and if it didn't work okay 
it, it wasn't going to work. I mean, if it did work well, okay, there was only one way to find out it was going to work. So I, I actually took a leave of absence mm -hmm. uh, from the magazine, and I gave the job as a volunteer six months, and I was, per the lessons of Pete Hamill, writing down every single thing that happened every single day on the job. Uh, so I would have that kind of rawness uh, of the experience to transmit on the page. And then I, I uh, went back to the magazine for a few uh, years, and I pulled it together. I wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it, and eventually it, it found uh, a place to be published. Mm -hmm. And that, that was the first book, uh, Slow Motion Riot. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like your writing has changed quite a bit since then. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, let's see. So I've read, I read slow motion riot. I read at least two of the other ones, uh, man of the hour. And there was, yeah, a... I read a couple of them myself. Yeah. Probably more than once. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it seemed like your characters were, uh, Oh, I, I, I don't know, like a probation officer. I think one, there was a teacher. Was yeah. It? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, uh, and now it seems like you've gone more towards, uh, writing about police. Uh, well, uh, about police and also uh, often about defendants or people who were in the system um, or um, people who uh, uh, support uh, law enforcement or undermine law enforcement. I mean, the, the, the books, they, they get marketed as thrillers or as mm -hmm. mysteries, and I don't think of them that way at all. That's that's not what they are in my head at all. They're crime novels, which is right. different. Right. Like, like this most recent book, Sunrise Highway. That it's it's about. Um, it was inspired by something that happened. Uh, that's what I, I wanted to ask you about. If it was uh, based on a true story to any extent. It, it, yeah. Well, when I first started at New York Magazine, there was um, a story about a, a terrible murder that happened in Long Island in um, the 70s. And a young man was killed by having stones stuffed down his throat. Mm. And it was such a shocking, disturbing image that I never forgot it. And it, it stayed in my head for a long time. And... The fact that I had an emotional response to that is more important in a way than the elaboration of character or the elaboration of plot, which comes later on, because having an emotional connection to the core of your material, I, th I think, is the most important thing for a writer. And there's no, there's no faking it uh, if you don't have that. So it took me many, many years to figure out how that would become a story. And then... I began to think about, well, I mean, it seemed like something from uh, Greek drama, somebody getting stones stuffed down their throat. But that's not exactly how the book begins, but there's a similar incident at the beginning of the book. And I began to think about, well, what if there was somebody who was a witness in that case that takes place in the 70s who sends another young man to prison? And, and what if that young man who went to prison wasn't really guilty? And what if we follow the story of that young man who was the witness who sent the other young man away? What if that one, that young man becomes a police officer? What if he becomes a sergeant, a lieutenant, and ultimately the chief of police, and then there's a series of similar murders on his watch in the current era? And he becomes involved in investigating that and then connecting it to that murder in which he was involved as a witness many years before. But what if his connection is not that he was the witness or that he's the investigator, but that he in fact is the perpetrator of all these crimes? Mm -hmm. Well, then you've got a very different kind of story. It's a much darker story, but if it takes place over 40 years, which this does, you've also got a story that's, about something more than just the individual pathology. It's also about the pathology of the system and the pathology of mm -hmm. everyone else who let him get away with it and who promoted him. 
And right. what is that? And what does that say about that community? What does that say about society? And what does that say about who we are now? That that that's more a crime novel than a mystery because I tell you who did it. Right. right, right. right. Don't you? Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I'm putting it right down on the table there. I'm not. I'm not hiding. Uh, the character. I mean, that's the problem I sometimes have with mysteries. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of great mysteries, a lot of great mystery writers. A lot of my friends uh, write mysteries, and they're and they're terrific. But sometimes I have an issue that, like, you're hiding your main character, and you're hiding the motivations of your main character mm. until the last ten pages of the book, where he spills it all out in a way that. You know, that doesn't seem completely plausible and doesn't seem completely fair to the reader. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to write a darker, mm-hmm. uh, more character-driven kind of book. Yeah, and I think that's much more interesting. I don't know why you're talking about this, and I'm reminded of the uh, graphic novel that was made into a movie called From Hell. Did you ever read that? Yeah, yeah. Was you, that uh That was about Jack, Jack the, the Ripper. Ripper? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Hughes brothers did it, right? Uh I think he was talking it was this, I can't remember was it the 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 prince who did it or was it Walter Sickert the painter? I can't No, remember. no, no. No, no. The, the the movie makers were the Hughes brothers, I think. Oh, oh, oh yes, yes. But the movie yeah. Just basically in the novel, in the graphic novel, it's like, yeah, here's the guy who, you know, committed the murders and we're going to follow him around over his life and see how he got to. There was no mystery at all. Right. And they right. turned the movie, turned it into a mystery. Like, oh, I wonder who the Jack, Jack the Ripper could be. And it was it was just terrible. Yeah. No, that that's been done. I mean, again, those there's there's a place for those kind of stories. And obviously there's a great audience for that. Those kind of stories. But for me. I, I want to know what's driving that guy. Right. Uh, in, the, in the book, I, I, there's also a protagonist. There, there's a female character who's a detective from New York City who ultimately comes up against this guy that I'm talking about. So you're in her head. So it's not just unrelieved darkness. There's right. contrast uh, between that, though she's a very flawed character as well. But, but I, I want to be inside my character's heads, and I, I don't want to, you know... Uh, fool the reader in that way yeah i wanted to ask you about uh uh lord robles too uh yeah. so this is uh, and she's is she's a very interesting character because she is so flawed and yeah. there's like a scene uh so i'm i, I don't know, i think i'm about two-thirds of the way through the book uh i i think it's great by the way i think it's Thank your you. i think it's your best work thank uh, you yeah so uh that's you know uh really great stuff uh there was a scene where she's in a in a cell, right? Yeah. With a dangerous psychopath. Yeah. And if this was a movie, well, first of all, she'd be played by you know uh, I don't know Scarlett Johansson or uh, yeah. you know, and she would you know break out her you know kung fu moves and make short work of the person. That's not what happens right. in in, right. in the book, and it's much more interesting that way. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think it was uh, I think it was you who told me this again. Getting back to. Uh, good old Elmore for a second that he essentially uh, all of his books for the longest time he was basically writing about the same protagonist but yeah. he gave him a different name in all of the books for copyright reasons yeah something like yeah. that yeah, yeah. Uh, and so but I noticed that like this is I think this is the first time where you've done that where you've uh, uh, you she first appeared in Proving ground from when was right. it, about three years ago, and so you're at, so this is a sequel of sorts, I guess, or a continuing in a series. And well, uh, yeah, what, what made you decide to go that route? And are you going to continue with her as a character? Well, I, I'm going to write at least one more book that she appears in. And again, I don't, I never wanted to do a series character. I, I never wanted to do. A is for apple, B is for bastard, or anything like that. That's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've written for television shows, and now I'm very appreciative of those jobs, and very appreciative of uh, the audience for those shows. But uh, the idea for some of the shows I've written for is that the characters never change. Right, that's and the classic they, TV uh, mantra, right? Nothing ever changes. From yeah, show. well, not. Not so yeah, much not any, the, not not anymore so much, but classical yeah. TV, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I I understand that a lot more than I used to. 
um, that, you know, life is hard. Life is scary, especially these days. And, and, uh, TV can be comfort food. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and I used to, I used to have some problems with that uh, because I kind of thought, well, well, why do you, why do you need to be comforted? But just why can't you be confronted with what the world is really like? And that, you mm-hmm. know, that's sort of where I go more uh, as a novelist. Uh, you know, again, I have sex and jokes in the books, and I'm cognizant of entertainment value. But I never wanted to do a serious character because I've always had the attitude of a fiction is supposed to be about change. It's supposed to be about how characters change. And so if I'm telling you a story in a novel, I I have to be giving you the story of a character going through life change. Well, if I'm writing about the same character in 25 books and this person's having 25 dramatic life changes in 25 years, well, that's not a very stable or believable person. Right. 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 <laughs> but but three books about this character at different stages of her life and, and showing her going through progression and, and showing how she changes as a person. Well, that maybe you can do, because if the role model is not so much Sherlock Holmes, and I don't mean this to sound pretentious, but um, John Updike would write about Rabbit every right. 10 years. And Rabbit was pretty different in each of those right, books. Right. The way that's plausible, he's a, he's a young man in Rabbit Run. He's he's a less young man in Redux, and uh, yeah, certainly he's a, a hot di- mess by the last one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so once I started to think about it that way, that okay, it, this is a bigger story, and I'm moving uh, this character through uh, a bigger story of her life. Then, then that became something I was much more interested in doing. Uh-huh. That's that's uh, yeah. Uh, somebody who pulled that off um, is uh, Lawrence Block, right? With yeah, his, sure. Right. Yeah. With, what was it? What's his text? His name Matt uh, Scudder. Uh, Matt, Matt Scudder. Yeah, Matt Scudder. Has, right. He has a couple of them, but but Scudder is the one that he's mostly invest, uh, invested in. It's, it's funny. I know Lawrence Block. And he's a good guy and a very good writer. And I was um, I did a reading. Um, at uh, in a bookstore in Queens with him this summer. And there were 10 other writers on the bill. And some of them were very, very good writers. Um, but some of them were trying a little too hard to be tough. You know, uh, about life on the street, being down and dirty and prostitutes and shooting up and this. I mean, some of it was good. Some of it was, you know, and then Larry sat down last, and he read a story about what it's like to be 80 and what it's like to cross the street when your knees really hurt. Mm-hmm. And I this is the real hard-boiled realism. Yeah. <laughs> 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 this is the real tough guy stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it also gets to the point that, uh, I mean, I, I love crime novels. I'm a, you know, I've, I've read Chandler and I, I love James M. Cain and you know yeah, all the, the old school stuff and yeah. you know James Elroy even although I have to say I, I went back and reread the uh, L.A. trilogy not the yeah. quartet because I skipped the first one and uh, right. uh, uh, I was a little disappointed they were not as good as I remembered them and maybe that's because the world of movies and uh, books and whatever Hannibal Lecter has changed. Yeah. The, the, the books didn't seem nearly as shocking to me as they did when I read them like, like 20, 25 years ago. I'm reading one. I really like right now, uh, a noir called black wings has my angel. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. Who's that by a guy named Elliot chase written 1953. Mm. Uh, he apparently wrote a bunch of other books, but this one is like head and shoulders above anything else he did. He's, he's like a much more literate Jim Thompson. Okay. Uh, uh, it's almost like I suspect Cormac McCarthy secretly would like to write books like this, <laughs> <laughs> you know, occasionally like McCarthy's a great writer, but occasionally he tries to get into like a basic narrative kind of thing. Right, and, right. and, it's a little bit like trying to fit an elephant inside a Volkswagen. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no country, no country for old men is. Yeah. It's pretty damn good. It's pretty it's damn true. good. And that's a, that's uh, a crime novel. Yeah, it is. It definitely is a crime novel. Well, this, this I would put on the same level. Okay. I'll check it out. 
Yeah. Uh, it's great to dig deep into some of that stuff. A, a book I read, um, uh, I'd heard of the movie, of course, for many years, but I, I uh, read the book recently was uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? by Horace uh, McCoy. Horace McCoy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my great. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's Crazy. way scarier and way tougher than the movie, yeah. Absolutely. Way, way scarier than the movie. Um, but uh, uh, what else did I want to ask? Yeah, so there's a, I, I, I kind of thought there was an element of uh, Pop 1280 in Sunrise Highway. Oh, yeah, I guess so. And, and also uh, um, The Killer Inside. Killer Inside Me, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I, I was thinking a little bit about, like, how do I not just imitate that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, that it's a it's a bad cop right uh, i have to do my own version of it but sometimes it's good to read what other people have done not because you're going to imitate it directly but just sort of to give you a sense of what's possible yeah uh, yeah and of course uh, elroy wrote lots yeah. of stuff about bad yeah, cops yeah, yeah. yes uh, yes hard, hardly male role models in any of those yeah. books <laughs> <laughs> And again, uh, because I've written for a lot of these shows in which the cop is the hero, unautomatically right. the hero, I have, I have a fair amount of energy. I'm not, and then a lot of my friends are police officers, and, and I'm not like saying all cops are bad or anything like that. I think public service is great, but but I had a lot of energy to explore the other side of the coin right. when it came to this book. Right. Well, I mean, to my mind. Uh... Uh, and you know, I know a couple of cops too. And I'd say, you know, uh, uh, for me, the problem with, uh, police policing in general, um, is that, you know, just like, re- just like regular life, 90 to 95% of these guys are just like, you know, doing a tough job and, you know, great. And then there's like 5% who are, uh, fucking psychos. You know, and, yeah, and the problem, yeah, and, I, I, and they're and, prote- and they're protected by the other ninety five percent. Well, also, as as the guy says in the book, and I, I'm quoting uh, uh, oh, spo- a cop, spoiler you know, alert, perhaps. Yeah, well, no, the guy says <laughs> in the book, uh, uh, do you know who the most politically powerful person in the United States is? It's it's not Speaker of the House. It's it's not the President of the United States. It's me right at this moment, right? Because I've I have a gun on my hip and I have discretion, yeah, whether to use it or not. And th- and that wasn't me making up a little political broadside at the moment. It was, that was said to me by uh, a cop named Bill Kaunitz, uh, who's pretty well known in the New York department at the time. Uh, and and when you begin to think about it that way, it's 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 heavy. It's a heavy responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was going to ask you. Uh, uh, the uh, the uh, police procedural aspects of the book uh, the uh, all seem you know very uh, you got a lot of very similitude going on there and I was going to ask you how you know th- so you say you know a lot of cops and I want to ask you uh, how did you uh, get to know a lot of cops was that from working on the let's let's talk was that from working on the TV shows like you were on Law and Order and oh no 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 that was much more from um... Starting off being a journalist and then um, even more from being a novelist, I would say that uh, I do a lot of research for my books, like uh, I was saying with the uh, probation officer thing. But also uh, I wrote a book called Slipping into Darkness um, in which um, it's about the relationship uh, between a guy who goes to prison when he's 17, comes out when he's 37, and his relationship to the cop who put him away and may have put him away for the wrong reasons. Mm. Uh, um, and I spent a couple of years hanging around with um, one of the Manhattan homicide squads and really getting to know some of the guys and, and uh, uh, really becoming friends uh, with some of them. And, and the people who do this kind of job well are really acute students of human nature and human behavior. I mean, look, the ones who are smart, Right. are really smart and really know what people are like and, and have tremendous insights. Um, and, and just as a novelist, that that's a treasure trove to hang around those guys. And the other part of it is that I was hanging around them, but I wasn't hanging around them as a journalist, so I wasn't going to expose them. I wasn't going to like write about them the very next day or compromise cases right. that we're working on. And so they were willing to be very open with me. 
uh, and honest with me. Uh, so I, I got to really understand how the job can be done, or some version of how the job can be done from hanging around with them and, and watching the interrogations and going around with them and being in the car and being in the housing projects and, and just having a lot of uh, firsthand uh, experience. I, I mean, it's a real privilege uh, to get to do that. And then um, doing that kind of work with uh, cops outside the city also, I learned a lot from that because New York City has a lot of restrictions uh, and the kind of access that you can have. So uh, that that was very helpful as well. I've worked with some tech advisors. on, uh, In particular, on Blue Bloods, there's a guy named Jim Nusafaro who uh, was a detective. He's been very, very uh, helpful to me. He's a terrific guy, and I bounced off of him and off uh, Tim Hardiman, who's uh, an inspector, who's uh, the tech advisor on uh, Law & Order SVU. But but there's a limit to how realistic you can be on a network television show. Just mm -hmm. the audience uh, isn't going to hang in for it uh, one way or the other. Um, so it's it's just trying to get to know people and and uh, and being aware that um, the readership can spot what isn't true. That so it, the point isn't to get it exactly right. But to have the reader believe that you know this world and, and mm -hmm. to feel comfortable that you're a responsible guide to this underworld that you're leading them into. Yeah, well, you definitely you definitely pull it off. And it makes reading Thank the you. book a lot of fun. Uh, Thank you. I, I, oh, I should point out that in uh, the third or fourth page of uh, chapter 30, there is a uh, there's a typo. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll have to look for it. <laughs> it says something. It was something like uh, many cops didn't believe in of democracy. There's an extra of in there. Oh, wait a second. I think were you reading an uncorrected proof? I was reading a Kindle version. A Kindle version. All right, I gotta check that. Okay. Because uh, <laughs> I I think that's actually a line I cut in the final version of the book. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting that it ended up in the Kindle version. All right, I'll have to look at that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I also wanted to I wanted to ask you, so you wrote uh, the first uh, number of novels, I think it was like five novels you wrote, and then you uh, spent some years in the wilderness. I think it would be interesting to talk about that. Um, you, and you, you wrote for TV during that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it was a long time between novels, right? It was like 10 or was 12 years. 11 years between yeah. uh, Slipping Into Darkness and Proving Ground. Um, I'd written six novels, and then I decided I wanted to write a much more ambitious novel, which is still not finished. Uh, is this your I'm Egyptian novel? Yeah, yeah. And that required going to Egypt five or six times and you know, writing and rewriting and rewriting because I have to pay the bills in the meantime. So I got the opportunity to write for television. Um, and uh, Eric Bogosian, who's a, a friend of mine, introduced me to the showrunner at Law & Order Criminal Intent. Uh, Eric was starring on that show. Uh -huh. uh, okay. was uh, what was the above-the-line uh, actors on that show. Um, so I worked with Warren Light, who was the showrunner on that for um, a year or so. And then uh, from there, I wrote a pilot for FX. And then um, I worked on a show that nobody watched called Law & Order Los Angeles. It had a very, very good cast. It had um, Alfred Molina mm. and Terrence Howard and Corey Stoll, who's a great actor who's mm -hmm. clear. His career really took off, right? Oh, yeah, he's he's everywhere these days. Well, he's, he's very capable. He's, he's a very good actor. And then I, I uh, did the SBU thing for a few years, Law & Order SBU, and I, I really personally like Mariska Hargaday very, very much, and I have a lot of, re a lot of respect for her. And then uh, I did Blue Bloods for a while, and now I'm uh, sort of doing my own thing. Uh, Are you on uh, hiatus from Blue Bloods, or have you left? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I've, I've, uh, it was, I've moved on from Blue Bloods. Okay. And uh, uh, I've focused on writing uh, a new book and going on tour with Sunrise Highway and getting started on uh, uh, the next book that comes after that. And then I have a few other projects that might come to fruition.
Yeah. Are you going to uh, go back and revisit the uh, uh, Egyptian novel now that you're I think, back in the limelight, so to speak? Yeah, well, I think eventually, eventually. Yeah. Uh, it would have been too soon to write that. I, at, at the time I was trying to write it, um, the last time I really was trying to finish it was 2011. And I tried to give it, it was a, it's a book that, again, spans a long period of time. And I was trying to write a happy ending to the book because it, I was writing at that point during the uh, Arab Spring. Right. And somehow the ending wouldn't quite land, and now I know why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, was yeah. A, there was a moment of hope in the world there, it seemed, for, yeah. for a couple yeah. of seconds. Yeah, it was a little too fragile. Yeah. It's funny, when I was in Egypt researching uh, that book, I, I, you know, I was talking to a bunch of students, and they said, well, what do, you, what do you normally write in the United States? I said, well, I write crime novels and I write for these television shows that are police procedurals. And I said, well, what's that? I said, you know, shows in which the police officer is the hero, the solves the crime, saves the day. They're like, really? You, you have shows in which the police officer is the hero? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you wouldn't do that here? They said, no, here it would be a show in which the police officer grabs you puts you in a room, says, I will beat you until you confess, and then I will put you in a dark hole, and you will never be seen again. I said, well, uh, that doesn't sound like a very good television show. No, no. <laughs> over and over again, 26 yeah. episodes a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I could get through like two acts with that, but then like you know, <laughs> season two would be tough for sure. Yeah, or just the last five or ten minutes of uh, every show could be a black screen. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. The Sopranos oh, uh, final episode, but going oh, over like long, going, much longer. <laughs> I was going David Lynch. I think Lynch had stuff like that last iteration of uh, Twin Peaks. Yeah, I, I didn't watch it. He sort of, he sort of lost me with all the uh, Twin Peaks reboots somewhere along the along the line. People tell me the last one was fantastic, but I haven't it, uh, it, checked it out it, yet. It had some stuff that's pretty weird to see on television. Mm-hmm. He had some stuff that definitely felt like, how did this art installation get on cable television? Yeah. I mean, it's that extreme at times. And, and you can say it's brilliant, and at times it was, but it, it kind of persuaded me. His primary interest is not as a storyteller. Right. Storytelling is just something that he uses as, you know, a color. Right, right, and his palette, but it's that is not his primary interest at all. Right, he's he's I, I believe he's a started as a visual artist and a painter. Yeah, yeah. Did, and, did you ever hear who his roommate was at college? <laughs> no, was it Al Gore or I don't know? <laughs> wild guess. No, it was Peter Wolf, the lead singer <laughs> from the Jay Giles band. Awesome. They must have had great parties. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Al Gore was with Tommy Lee Jones, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then he made uh, Eraserhead, which is a very uh, painterly movie, right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, absolutely. apparently, I just learned this. I thought this was fascinating. Apparently, Stanley Kubrick's favorite movie of all time. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. And, and I can kind of understand why. You know? Yeah, I can sort of see it, but it would be perfect yeah. in, in Kubrick's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, uh, I think it's time. Uh, would you like to uh, read an excerpt from Sunrise I will, Highway? I, I will do my level best. I will all right. Do my, all right. <clears throat> this is the opening section of the book. Oh, by the way, I'm going to interrupt you quickly. Uh, I was uh, pleased to see that the the prologue of the book was actually a slightly different version of the piece we published in Sensitive Skin a few years ago. That's, a, that's exactly right. It was published as a short story called The Storm, originally, right. mm -hmm. in Sensitive Skin. Um, and um, that, that's what I'm going to read right now. And just as uh, background, obviously this was is uh, inspired by the events of October 29, 2012, when Hurricane Sandy hit uh, the East Coast. And uh, the story that you published was written, I think, on November 2nd, or something like that, right after it happened. Um, and I, I lived with it, and I sat with it uh, for a while. 
And again, because there was kind of an emotional connection there, I kind of came back to it for the beginning of this book. He liked to have his house in order, which was why he never had a family or pets. He liked his routines, and there was nothing wrong with that. Every day in the summer, he wore his father's old FDNY windbreaker with a blue polo shirt, khaki shorts, and flip-flops so he could walk down to the beach without getting a chill. When the weather turned, he had a half dozen identical blue sweatshirts that he wore with velour track pants and wool socks. Fortunately, he only had to go out once a week for groceries because the settlement he got from the city after the accident allowed him to stay home and mind his business. So naturally, he wasn't going to open the door to a stranger in the middle of a hurricane. The doorbell started ringing just after the first commercial break for the Cheers rerun. He didn't like sports or these new shows with singing and dancing contests where crazy people screamed with joy and disappointment. There was no telling how things would end up. It was much better when you could anticipate and prepare yourself. Not that he hadn't been paying attention to the weather reports about this Sandy. He had the generator running and the storm windows his brother had put in latched tight with foam and tape around the edges to keep the air out. It gave him a secure feeling when he heard the little drops on the glass, like the claws of hungry animals that couldn't get at him. The rain started falling harder at four. By sunset, it was a deluge, but the roof was new and tight, so he had nothing to worry about until the bell rang. It was a soft, modulated two-tone, the same one his parents had put in when they bought the house in 1970. He ignored it the first time it rang because it was after seven o'clock. Who would be out on a night like this? It went a second time a half minute later, and he reached for the remote to put the sound up. All his life he'd lived in Rockaway, maintaining the place while the neighborhood was going to hell and the ocean was getting scummy, and he could count on less than one hand the times a stranger had come to his door for a legitimate reason. Ten seconds later, it rang a third time, like someone poking a dirty finger into his ear over and over again. He crossed his arms and crossed his ankles and made himself all taut and tense as he leaned back in the barco lounger, wishing they'd just stop and go away. But then the bell started ringing more frantically so that he couldn't hear his show, couldn't think about anything except why wouldn't people just leave him alone. As he went to look out the peephole, he could hear the wind howling and feel the storm trying to get in the house. Someone was on his porch. A silhouette with long, dripping hair. Like a wraith from a Japanese horror movie with curtains of wild monsoon rain sweeping back and forth behind it. Hello? He called out in a high, shaky voice. Can you please help me? He kept his eye at the peephole. I know this is going to sound crazy. The voice was girlish and, of course, untrustworthy. But your house is the only one with a light on the block. She hugged herself, shivering as she coughed. Rain from her clothes was puddling on his porch. Some kind of manacle was on her wrist with a chain attached. One of those moronic fashion accessories kids wore these days, like dog collars and bull rings through the nose. He tried to see who else was out there. It was a trick of some kind. Yoki doke they called it on these shows. Using an innocent-sounding girl or a child to get you to open your door to home invaders. Sir, ma'am, I know you're in there. I can hear the television. 
she reached out and banged with the brass knocker. It had been years since anyone had used it, and he jumped back, almost slipping on his mother's old throw rug. From the living room, he could hear the laughter from the cheers audience, reminding him of the warmth and comfort he'd left behind. Please, she said, I'm begging you. It's not safe out here. Go away, he yelled. It was awful the way his voice cracked when he was nervous and made him sound more like his mother than his father. He should have kept pestering his brother, the big state trooper, to help him get a gun a few years ago instead of letting the matter drop when it was suggested he could just drive to Pennsylvania or Florida and buy himself one with a driver's license. Well, obviously that wasn't going to happen. But now he was here by himself, abandoned and defenseless with this creature at his door. I know what you're thinking, she called out, but someone is after me. She turned sideways to look behind her, and he could see a bump under her shirt. Mister, it's dark out here. I am pregnant, and I am scared. Cars are getting washed away in the street. He saw now that blood was dripping from the manacled wrist. But someone else could still be standing to the side of the door. What are you doing out in the middle of a hurricane, he shouted. Leave me alone. She lifted one foot, then the other, then suddenly flung her whole body up against the door. Sir, I wouldn't be out here if I wasn't desperate. Her voice was clogged with snot and self-pity. I know you want to do the right thing. Well, so what if it wasn't a trick? Did he really need trouble in his life? Some unwed pregnant teenager coming into his house and trying to make it her own to soak his furniture and bleed on the bathroom rugs? Oh, she'd want to warm up in his shower and use the nice towels. Then she'd ask to go in his bathroom and look in his closets for dry clothes. Next thing he knew, she'd be sitting in his barca lounger using the remote. Or worse, she would want to talk. She'd want to tell him about all the misery that had happened in her life that had led to her being out on the street in the middle of a hurricane. And he'd be expected to nod and listen and say the right things in response without wanting to scream and jump out of his skin. Then she'd yawn and smile and put her hand on top of his and ask if it would be all right if she just stayed until the storm passed. And after that, he would never be rid of her. Off my porch, she yelled. I'm warning you. He could hear the wind off the ocean getting fiercer now, ripping at the awning over the front door. It went flapping away while his garbage cans went rolling down the street and sirens wailed in the far distance, attending to other people's emergencies. Sir, she sniffed again, I am just a person in need. If you can't let me in, can you just at least make a call for someone to come and get me? I don't even need to dial it myself. From the living room, the cheers crowd was laughing again. From a friendly place where everybody knows your name. You think anyone's coming on a night like this, he asked. Why do you have to say it like that? Pointing out his own vulnerability. Oh my God, she started to weep. They're going to find me out here. That's not my problem. They're going to find me, and they're going to kill me. And I have a shotgun. The panic in his voice betrayed the weakness of the lie. And if you're not gone, by the count of three, I'll shoot through the door. One. Oh, no, mister, please. Two. He looked around for an umbrella or a cane to defend himself in case she had accomplices about to kick the door down. Three. He shut his eyes and turned his back to the door just wishing she'd disappear and take her sobbing and her dire needs with her. He braced again, waiting for the next plea. But there was only the sound of the yowling winds, tearing at the boardwalk and sluicing water into the streets. On the TV, the show was getting interrupted briefly for a weather update and a test of the emergency broadcast system. 
But then he heard the return of laughter and the tenuously hopeful piano music they used between scenes. He went back to his chair and told himself that none of this had really happened or mattered. A man had a right to be left alone. Who could hold you responsible for anyone else's choices or bad luck? He used the remote to turn up the volume and drown out the sounds of the sirens in the storm. So he could concentrate on Sam and Diane and their friends at the bar. A place where people cared about each other. They didn't make them like that anymore. What happened? All right. Great. All right, Peter. Uh, thanks so much for, uh, for uh, participating in this venture. Uh, and uh, everybody, if you haven't gotten it yet, you should get a copy of Sunrise Highway. But first, you should get a copy of Proving Ground, and then you should read Sunrise Highway. Uh, great stuff. Uh, all right. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.